Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 20th of November 2022, 11 o'clock service. Stephen Kurt speaking on Things Jesus Came to Bring Us, Unity. Well, these days, we do not have that much experience of what's coming up on the screen now. In other words, darkness. We don't have that much experience of total darkness, at least. You see, we have things like instant electric lighting within our homes, don't we? So at a flick of a switch, this can happen. Hopefully not all the lights are left on, but if you know my children, you'll know that's quite a familiar sight. But also when we walk down our streets, we're not in darkness, by and large, this is what we have, lighting. It means that the experience of having to endure darkness without being able to do anything about it is actually, for most of us, pretty rare. It's only on those rare occasions when we suddenly have a power cut, very suddenly that happens, that we experience what it's like to be in darkness. And it's when we experience darkness that we suddenly realise how important light is. Darkness stops us seeing things we need to see, doesn't it? Darkness confuses us. We're not sure where we are. Darkness, therefore, provides loads of opportunities for accidents. And darkness basically stops us being able to live in anything like a normal manner. And that's why the Bible so often reaches for darkness as a metaphor for conveying what it means to live without reference to God. The God of the Bible is affirmed as our creator, isn't he, time and again. And it's this that lies at the basis of the assertion of the Bible that life can only, therefore, come from God. Live our lives in reference to God, the Bible asserts, and we continue being plugged in to that source of life with that life, as it were, being constantly pumped into us. Live without reference to that source of life, on the other hand, the Bible says, and the result is the opposite, namely death. Not instantly, of course, but a path of diminished human existence that inevitably leads in that direction. Why? Because we've cut ourselves off from the source of life. And as I say, in spelling this out, the Bible makes a great deal of these images of light and darkness. Life without God, like darkness, it stops us seeing things that we need to see. Life without God, like darkness, confuses us. It provides plenty of opportunity for accidents, and it basically stops us being able to live in anything like a normal manner. But it actually goes further than this. Live in darkness rather than within the light of God, and the result, whether we realise it or not, is actually a creeping death. Why? Because we're cutting ourselves off from those life-giving rays of light which alone can sustain us. So it's a bit like a plant which is kept in darkness. If a plant is kept in darkness, even if we're watering it, if we locked it in a cupboard, basically it will wither because it's being taken away from that life-giving source of light. It's the same, actually, with us. But live, on the other hand, in reference to the light of God revealed in Jesus Christ, 
expose ourselves to those life-giving rays, and we not only see things more clearly that we need to see, we not only avoid confusion and so many of the accidents that would otherwise come our way, but crucially, we grow, to use the motto of Christchurch School, we grow more fully into the people God made us to be. That growth process is enabled to happen. And that is the Christian life. Trying to walk in the light of God that he revealed in Jesus Christ because that alone can bring us life. That alone can bring us that fullness of life that God wants for us. According to that letter of John that we heard earlier, we heard part of it, there are several things that this will mean. Walking in the light means acknowledging our sinfulness, doesn't it? It means acknowledging the amount in our lives that's shown up by that light to fall short of God's perfect will for our lives. Now that's not as negative as it may sound because of course it's the root of those sins being forgiven. That's why we have that confession and absolution at the start of our services. And it's the opportunity then for God's spirit to come and live within us so that more and more of our life can receive more and more of that light and that life that comes from God. But this is hard work rather than simply coming naturally. If we claim to be in fellowship or partnership with God, John says, we need to make the conscious decision to walk in the light rather than walk in darkness. And of course, that's got loads of implications, hasn't it, for the way in which we live our lives. Now, just one of these, but perhaps the most important, or definitely the most important, is the decision to love those who share our faith in Jesus Christ. The challenge to love does go beyond that, but that's what I'm going to focus on this morning. The decision to love those who share our faith in Jesus Christ. This was the substance of that passage that we heard earlier, the first one. It said this, whoever loves his brother, sister, lives in the light and there's nothing in him to make him stumble. But it also says this, but whoever hates his brother or sister is in the darkness. He doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded him. Now, when we look at those words and take them in, what do we make of them? Perhaps we don't regard it as that tricky, particularly if we're not that conscious of hating anyone, which I imagine might go for quite a few of us here. We might be thinking, well, I can't think of anyone who I absolutely hate, so how does this particularly speak to me? Well, before we let ourselves off the hook too quickly, what we need to remember is that throughout this letter, John is drawing very stark contrasts with no safe middle ground. We're either one thing or the other, he's saying. People, according to this letter, as I said earlier, are either, according to John, investing in life or they're investing in death. And whatever they might think, they're either living in light or they're living in darkness. And the same, he now says, is actually true of love and hate. We're either doing one or we're doing the other. That's how starkly he puts it. What's the logic for that? Well, the logic is that love in the Bible isn't a feeling 
or an emotion, so much as practical and sacrificial acts of self-giving towards others. And the reason why love is presented as the greatest virtue is because the God from whom all life comes is described as actually being love. God isn't described as just doing love particularly well, doing amazing acts of love. It's deeper than that. The Bible says that God actually is love. In his inner being, he is love. And it's from there that it should start making a lot more sense to us that love and life, the life that just comes from God, go completely together. It should start making more sense to us because we already know that if we think about it, that love and life are completely entwined. We actually see it all the time. So we see people feeling more alive than ever when they either love someone else or they're loved by someone else. Now this isn't just true of romantic relationships. It's true of deep friendships. It's true when there's a, a newborn child in a family. People feel more alive when they are loving or receiving love than at any other time. The two things are really connected. It's part of our experience that we need to really engage with and take seriously. Because it shows how life-giving love is. It's so powerful. So some of you uh, have uh, had children, some of you have become grandparents. And there's this enormous feeling of love that takes place, and it's life-giving. Life's transforming. Not everyone has that experience, but a lot of us have friendships where that friendship makes such a difference in bringing life. It, it's transforming when there's real love in that friendship. And of course, marriages and other relationships come into this category as well. Love is transforming. Love has a way of bringing life which nothing else can really match up to. When I do uh, funerals, which I very often do, sometimes it's in the most dreadful of circumstances. And one of the things that I very often say at funerals, particularly these days, the more of them I've done, is how love possesses this mysterious power to what I call punch above its weight. People can be having a, a terrible time, a dreadful time. Awful things can have happened to them. Things that, logically, it's difficult to see how anything can make a difference to their situation. And then someone, perhaps someone uh, who's local to them, not someone necessarily closely connected to them, does a small act of love. Perhaps they drop in some flowers. Perhaps they drop in a card. Perhaps they just say a kind word. And it has this mysterious power to bunch above its weight. Logically, it shouldn't make any sort of difference, and yet it does. It points to the fact that love is stronger than evil. That's the point I often make at funerals, which people really need to hear, particularly if it's terrible circumstances. But it also points to the fact that love brings the life of God in a uniquely powerful, transforming way. And love, even in the flawed and fitful ways in which we as human beings display it, because we're often not very good at doing this, but when we are, when we can do this, 
It's unique in its life-giving power. It's unique in its ability to bring life. Love somehow possesses a power to bring transformation and healing and start undoing the most savage hurts and pain. And the question explanation of this is that it's because all love ultimately comes from the God who alone can bring life. We know that children, or indeed adults, who haven't received enough love don't grow as they should, do they? Their emotional growth becomes stunted. And once we recognise the life-giving power of love, we realise that it's not an exaggeration to say, as John does, that not to love is to hate. Why is that? Because when we don't love, we're cutting people off from the source of life. And that, in his stark words, is hating them. That's why love is the definitive sign of those who belong to God. That's why love is the definitive sign of God's life and God's light working within us. God is love, and if his light and his life are within us, then we'll be people who love as well. And not simply our nearest and dearest. The really distinctive thing about Christianity is meant to be that love is displayed towards people who aren't just members of our families, or those in our natural friendship groups, because the love that's really radical, life-giving and transforming is the love that pushes beyond those boundaries and includes people that we've got nothing to gain from showing that love towards in an obvious sense, and we've got no particular grouping with them beyond our fellow membership of the body of Christ. And that's the sort of love that also makes the most impact on a watching world. When a watching world sees a church showing that sort of love towards one another that goes beyond the normal bonds of kinship, it's that love that makes the most impact on a watching world. Back in 1997, a sociologist called Rodney Stark wrote a very significant book called The Rise of Christianity. And he was a sociologist rather than certainly a theologian or a historian, but that's the real value of the book. Because Rodney Stark analysed in this book why this new movement, the Christian movement, grew so rapidly from the first century onwards. And one of the most striking passages within Stark's book is his description of how Christians in ancient Turkey would react when their town was struck by plague. When plague struck these towns in these lower regions near to the sea, the rich and well-to-do, particularly the doctors, would gather up their family and possessions and they'd leave town. They'd flee to the hills to fresher and less polluted air. They'd go to family and friends in town some distance away. But the Christians, and this is well attested, often within the poorest of those populations, and many of them slaves, they wouldn't flee. They would stay and they would nurse people who had the plague, including those who were neither Christians nor their family members nor in any way really connected with them. Now, sometimes those who were ill would, as a result of this care, recover. They'd get well again, because not all such diseases were fatal. 
And sometimes, of course, the Christians themselves would catch the disease and they would die from it. But either way, the point was graphically and irresistibly being made to a watching world that a new way of being human had arrived. No one had ever thought of living in this way before. But now the world was seeing a demonstration of the truth that a love had arrived in the world that really could bring life to its fullest extent. And they were seeing a rock-solid example as well of people who believed that unless they chose to actively love those beyond their nearest and dearest and treat them as their brothers and sisters, they weren't walking in the light that they claimed to have received. And this, according to Rodney Stark, is the biggest part of the answer to why Christianity grew so quickly. A movement had arrived in the world that was actively demonstrating how life and love belong totally together and it was irresistible to others. They were attracted in to this powerful demonstration of the life that came from this love. And it's that sort of amazing community of love that Jesus came to make possible. How did he make that possible? He made it possible because of the way in which his death on the cross set us free from the power of evil. That's where those verses at the end of the passage we had read come in. As John encourages his readers to realise that the challenge to live this way is actually possible. It's possible as a result of what Jesus has done. It's possible as a result of the forgiveness they've received. They're in relationship with God, the sole source of life, and they therefore, because they're joined to Jesus, have overcome the evil one. Let's look at part of those words now. John's trying to make it as inclusive as possible to cover the various different people in the uh, church, their different ages, the young, the old, those in between. He says, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. In other words, the sole source of life, the creator God. I'm writing to you, young men and women, because you have overcome the evil one. So it's a challenge, a massive challenge, but also an encouragement to rise to that challenge because the power has been given to us. I've spoken a lot about unity here at Christchurch over the years, and very often when I've done so, I've used this statement from Paul, from his letter to the Galatians, these famous, uh, this famous verse, Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It's a wonderful statement. But it's the commitment to genuine self-giving love, which Paul, of course, also talks about, most obviously in 1 Corinthians 13, that famous passage, that makes sure that such unity moves beyond the merely theoretical to something that's genuine and transforming. Jesus came to bring everyone who belongs to him into one single family, where everyone has equal status in him. That's the blessing, that's the privilege of Christian unity, and it's wonderful. But the challenge that comes with it is the calling to express this unity in meaningful and practical and sacrificial acts of love, 
that powerfully display the light and the life that Jesus has brought to us. So where might this challenge be to us this morning? Perhaps there is a need of someone else in this church that you're aware of, where God is calling you to make the difference through some act of sacrificial service. Might be someone that you don't know that well. Might be someone who's very different from you. Someone who, if you weren't members of the same church, you see yourself as having very little in common with. Maybe there's someone of very different age or background. But that's precisely the point about Christian love. The point about Christian love is that it isn't just shared with those people who we feel most naturally at home with. The thing about Christian love is when we actively seek out those areas of need within people who are part of the same Christian family as us. Of course, it does go beyond that as well. But within a church context, those people who are within that family that we're part of, we sung this morning at the 9.30 service about being part of the big family of God, and we spoke about all the differences between people in that song, but how God loves us all, it's when we seek to respond to that truth by setting out to do practical acts of loving, sacrificial service to others. Now, perhaps God has placed people on your heart. God will normally make it clear to us where there's an area of need, where he's wanting us to respond. And, of course, then the challenge is with us whether we do respond to that or not. But like those early Christians during times of plague, it's precisely when we respond to those situations with practical acts of love that we most display both to those people, to ourselves, which is crucial, because it brings us a great deal of assurance, and to a watching world, we most display that the light and the life of God is within us. That's why we finished this short series that we've been having with unity. Things Jesus came to bring us, unity. It's a wonderful truth that God brings us into one family. I said this morning at the 9.30 service, I'm very fortunate that I grew up within a very loving family where there was lots of care, lots of attentiveness. Not all of us are that fortunate. But all of us can be brought into this family of the church and it's vital that that makes a practical difference. The unity of being brought into one single family on completely equal terms, with all that that means, is a wonderful blessing. It's a wonderful privilege. And it's important that we dwell on that. But it's also the most amazing challenge as well, isn't it? Because God has declared that every single person who belongs to Jesus Christ is part of his one single family. That is a wonderful blessing. That's a wonderful privilege. But it also brings with it the challenge to every single one of us to make sure that that family commitment is meaningful. And that means really having our eyes open to the various needs that are around us, 
and to where God is calling us to make a difference in that regard. God does call the church, of course he does, to serve the outside world as well. One of the most powerful ways, actually, in which we can serve the outside world is by acting as a visual aid of God's love. Being like those early Christians that Rodney Stark talks about, a community of love, where the love is so powerful for fellow members of the family that people want to join that family. People want to be part of it. Because people know love when they see it. So at the centre of our evangelistic strategy as a church, we're trying to demonstrate love in meaningful relationships as much as possible. And it's a very attractive proposition when people see it. And it points to the heart of the reality of God. Because the life that comes from God is most evident when people experience love on behalf of God, and that's because love lies at the heart of God's character. When people experience it, they know that it's real. When people experience it, they know it's transforming. And it's our wonderful privilege and calling to build a community here demonstrating practical acts of love towards one another and making it clear that this community is for everyone. So let's take time to, to think about that. Which people within this community uh, occur to us when we think about particular needs that people have? Where might God be calling us to be the one who makes a difference through our practical and sacrificial acts that demonstrate our unity, that demonstrate the light and the love that only come from him?